Passion, we also then, Lord, admit that we need your help to see beyond ourselves, beyond this world, and, Lord, capture that vision of heaven and of eternity, the destination and the purpose for which you have made us. And so I pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might lift our eyes to see you and the purpose you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's been several weeks since we were together, and the last time that I was with you, I hope you remember uh, in our study in the Gospel of Luke that I began with a reflection two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, uh, that shared hatred can create a bond between very strange allies. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 20. And you may remember where we had left off that two groups sought to indict Jesus with a controversial political question. You know, should they pay taxes to Rome? In the Gospel of Mark, the spies who were posing that question in verse 20 are identified as two groups that were hostile to one another, and yet bound to this common purpose, the Pharisees and the Herodians. On any other day, they would have been political enemies. The Pharisees, they were wrapped in the flag of Israel, and the Herodians, they were sold out to Rome. But in that passage, they were facing Jesus, united in an effort to destroy him. Now, that very same sort of principle comes into play now as we turn to verse 27 in chapter 20 where a whole new group now joins this lynch party. They step out of the dugout, and they have now their turn at bat. We see them in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, we read, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Boy, talk about strange alliances. Back in verse 19, we read that it was the teachers of the law and the chief priests who had deputized this posse to, to go after Jesus. And to a large extent, this was the group that called the, Pharisee, called the Pharisees, who were politically not just Israel first, but theologically were utterly conservative. Barclay describes them this way. They, they, they believed the entire Old Testament plus the thousands of rules and regulations and oral and ceremonial law that swirled around the Old Testament. They believed in the supernatural, in angels and spirits, and in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in destiny and that all things were determined by divine decree. That's who these people were to begin with. But now a group comes to join them, and they are the Sadducees. In verse 27, they were theological opposites in belief and in spirit to the, to the group that was already there. By belief, they accepted only the first five books of the Bible and nothing else. And even then, the first five books in their mind were just simple allegories, not to be taken literally. They did not even believe in the resurrection, and it says so right there in verse 27. Nor did they believe in anything supernatural or anything beyond this world. In essence, they were the perfect secular humanists, the, 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 the realists, the skeptics, who carried around the Ten Commandments as a 
general code of conduct, but, but, but for whom issues in this life were all that really mattered and there was really nothing more. Now, given any other setting, the sparks would fly if Pharisees and Sadducees ever encountered one another. But their mutual hatred for Jesus had now made them partners. And now it was time for the Sadducees to step up to bat and take their best shot at Jesus. And when they do, they do it with attitude. Notice for a moment in verse 27, the Sadducees, they say there is no resurrection. They are skeptics. But in verse 28, their question is all about the resurrection. In other words, they are skeptics with a healthy degree of sarcasm. So they ask the question, and I'm going to try to put it in a sarcastic voice. Ah, teacher, they said, uh, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. <laughs> now there were seven brothers, oh, and the first one married a woman and died childless, and the second and the third they married her, and in the same way until all seven died, leaving no children. And then finally the, the woman died, so now... <laughs> At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? <laughs> now, I, I, in reading it in that way, I've obviously set the tone for this question simply by the way I tried to speak it. Now, I've read a number of scholars who take this question with grim sincerity. Uh, why this is quite possibly an actual situation that was being debated in Jesus' day, some theologians say. It's quite possible that something like this had actually happened and, and that all the theological journals of the day were devoted to solving this deeply perplexing issue. Now, maybe I'm revealing something of my own soul here, but as I read that, I found myself thinking, so what? So what if they did? Just what relevance does this have to do with anything in real life? Because, I mean, history is littered with examples of heated debates over very silly things. Like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Do we need to know that? So what? You know, as soon as I I said those words out loud, so what, I, I think I got a feel for the question here in Luke chapter 20. The Sadducees, in my estimation, were were just having themselves a bit of fun asking Jesus to answer a question about an issue that they had already themselves deemed irrelevant. It was baited with absurdity. And let's see if we can get Jesus to bite. You can almost see their grins as they toss out their very favorite riddle. And chances are, uh, they'd done it before already with the Pharisees just to prove how out of touch the Pharisees were with real life. I mean... The pride of their position was that they were the ones who were really in touch with the here and now, and they were the ones who were really engaged in real life, and they were the ones who were really making investments that could actually cash in at the end of the day. So forget all of this heaven nonsense. Now, I understand why they chose this subject for Jesus. There was no secret that for Jesus, heaven is a reality. And the resurrection is a certainty. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he has simply stated that believers have their names written in heaven. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, that we should not fear those who kill the body, for we shall be raised from the dead to participate in the kingdom of God. In chapter 13, verse 29, Jesus has said that there are eternal consequences to our actions in this life. And Luke chapter 12, verses 33, and in 42 through 44, heavenly punishment or heavenly treasures and rewards are realities. The way Jesus spoke made heaven and resurrection not a matter of debate, but an issue of certainty. And so his answer here in verse 20 just brushes aside the hypothetical trap with the same clarity of voice, the same simplicity of truth. He didn't dignify their debate. He simply laid out the facts. And on your sermon outline, what I have as three absolute truths. Truth number one, there is a difference between this age and the next. Look at verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Now there is an awful lot tucked into these very few verses, but the bottom line here is very simple. There is a difference, a radical difference between this age and eternity. Here, we are trapped by the dimensions of space and time. Here, we are limited to experience life through our five senses. Here, we are familiar with simple life experiences, but nothing, nothing here can even begin to compare with what is there. We simply cannot grasp the dimensions of eternity through the lens of an, of an earthly experience. What heaven is like is so completely other that any question, even the one raised by the Sadducees that would measure heaven and earth in earthly terms, is irrelevant. As a pastor, I've been asked all sorts of questions about heaven. <clears throat> Will I have wings? Uh, will I have to play the harp? Uh, you know, will there be colors there? Because I really don't look good in white. You know, I, it's, it, questions like that. Ask questions about heaven. On the authority of Jesus Christ and on the word of God, I have to say this. I don't know. It is so completely other that I can't even begin to find words to describe it. Both the wonder for those who belong to God or the horror for those who choose to reject him. There is a difference between this age and the next. That's fact number one. Jesus goes on in verse 36. They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Fact number two. There is a resurrection. Now, I am fascinated by the way Jesus speaks here. He doesn't debate them, and he doesn't lay out an argument for a counter-argument. There is no debate. It is simply a statement of facts. The dead will be raised, whether or not the Sadducees believe in it. 
The dead will be raised whether or not you or I believe in it. Someday we will all be raised and raised with a resurrected body in order to stand before our Creator and give an account for our lives. Now, some have have thought of the resurrection as something that relates only to those who believe, the children of God, who go on to enjoy the pleasures of heaven. But the Bible speaks of the resurrection as something that belongs to every single one, including those who choose not to believe, and for whom it becomes a horror. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15 we read, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and of the wicked. And Jesus spoke of this conscious awakening in John chapter 5, verse 28. When all who are in their graves hear his voice and come out, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That's what Jesus said. And by saying that, he is He's introducing us to an eternal reality, a destiny that lies in our future, in your future and in mine, which raises the question, what will that destiny be? That destiny is determined by the decision that we are capable of making here and now. Then it will be too late. There is a difference between this age and the next, and there is a resurrection. These are the realities that Jesus nails down without debate. And then there's one more fact. In the eyes of God, he says, we are eternal beings. And I might add to that, this third fact in this passage, is that because we are eternal beings, our lives are best lived according to God's eternal purposes. Let me read on. In chapter 20, but the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Now just linger on that last line. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. All are eternally alive. All are alive forever. Do you realize that you are an eternal being? Just that thought should just blow your mind. I sound like I come out of the 60s, don't I? Blow my mind. We are eternal beings. We are alive forever. Do you realize that you are an eternal being? That God does not see you as some sort of animal caged in a little cell called time and space. You are already, even now, in his eyes, an eternal being, a being of infinite worth. Just think, what does God see when he looks at you even now? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he, he, he makes a statement that just resounds in my mind. It says, he said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Lewis concluded that there is no such thing as an ordinary person living on this earth. 
We are eternal beings. Given the opportunity to make decisions that will determine a destiny that is realized in a resurrection. I remember uh, years ago <laughs> being pastor at Bethany visiting a young couple who had just delivered their first child. As I came into the room, the I was going to say three of us, but it was actually four because <laughs> the baby was there. We were gazing into that maternity window and their little baby was all snuggled up in a hospital blanket. And the young father, he, he, he broke the silence with a very simple reflection. He said, boy, here is something which at one time was not, but now is a soul for eternity. That's, that's what he thought when he looked at his baby. Here is something which once was not, but now is a little soul for eternity. And it only took a few minutes for the words to sink in and, and, and hit me with a stunning thought. Here is something which at one time was not, but now is a soul for eternity. This little baby is an eternal being. And in the eyes of God is alive forevermore. The reality is out there for every single one of us. There is no ordinary person on planet Earth. Take a look around you. You could say the very same thing that the young father said. Here is someone who at one time was not, but now is a soul for eternity. Look around and see yourselves that way. Look in the mirror, see yourself that way. And then ask yourself, what does that call for out of your life? As I remembered, the young mother reached over and she took her husband's hand after he had said that, and she goes, I know, and that is why we have really got to pray. (laughs) This little baby, an eternal creature, and we must pray. And I had to think to myself, what went into their prayer, and now what has gone in through the years with their prayer as well? Because if you were to see others through God's eyes as eternal creatures, if you were to see yourself through God's eyes as an eternal creature, what would that do to you? My experience is that it changes all the rules, and it demands of us a different agenda in life. And it calls out of us different investments in life. One that is not measure, are not measured by the world that we see around us as if it was all that there is. As I've said, not only are we eternal beings, but our lives are best lived according to God's eternal purposes. At the end of this passage in Luke 20, I get the definite impression that the Sadducees were shook up because they realized the implications, the consequences of being eternal beings. In verse 19, they said, well well said, teacher, we can stop right there. I get the impression he's hit home. And in verse 40, they say no one dared to ask him any more questions because already the consequences are on the table. And, And as they left, I would like to think that some, maybe like us, were left to go on and consider, reconsider their lives in light of their eternal destiny. If you, if you had your choice to relate your goals and objectives and investments in life, which direction would you choose? The direction toward a kingdom whose boundaries 
are just on this earth or toward the direction of one who is moving toward eternity. A couple of years ago, Bill Hybels, the pastor of the Willow Creek Community Church, told a familiar story, familiar to many of us in the ministry, it happened to me one time actually, of being invited to lunch with one of the men in his congregation. And even though this man was a very successful businessman, he had committed his life to the Lord, to their ministry, and had, and, had, and had really made it his business to invest so much into the ministries of the church. They asked himself the question, what's my company compared to eternity? What can I invest in ministries that affect eternal beings? And what's more important than that? That was his guiding principle, even though he's a very successful businessman on this earth. So they went out to lunch, and Bill sense that there was a real serious mood on the table. And, and, and so finally, after eating, he stopped and he said, look, you, what is it that you want to talk about? And the man looked at me and said, Bill, he said, I, I just want you to look at me in the eye and tell me one thing. Tell me I am not crazy. As Bill told the story, he had to laugh. He's not a psychiatrist. He was not qualified to make any diagnosis. And so he said, why are you asking me this? And the man said this. He said, look, you know the commitments I've made and how I'm trying to to live on less each year so that I could give more, how I spend my vacations on missions and my evenings leaving Bible studies, and everyone around me is telling me that I'm crazy. My accountant, thinks, my accountant thinks I'm crazy, and my partners think I'm crazy, and my banker thinks I'm crazy. And to tell you the truth, every once in a while, I look in the mirror and I wonder to myself, am I crazy? So I need someone, I need you to tell me it is all worthwhile and that I am not crazy. What would you have said to that man? If you were to see others through God's eyes as eternal beings, what would you say to that man? The scriptures say, the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. What would you say? Jesus was the one who said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? What would you say? Look, I realize that there are people here who serve and give every day of their lives. And I realize that there are parents here who sacrifice everything for their children and for their grandchildren. I realize that even in the sanctuary, there are people who minister for long hours at great cost and that you are, in fact, servants who give above and beyond out of obedience to the Lord who loved you and gave himself for you. And so if you need somebody to say it, let me say it to you right now. You are not crazy. You are not crazy. You are not crazy. Oh, you are not crazy. (laughs) I had had to think about that one for a second. (laughs) But as Jesus says, there is a way we are to look at our lives so that we might follow him and fulfill what our creator has made of us. 
as men and women of God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray. Having, commit, having admitted that we are so easily bound to our five senses and to the world around us to see ourselves as the world would define us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a wisdom from the Spirit of God to see ourselves as you have made us eternal beings. Lord, help us to know that our relationship with you is real now and forevermore. And that as eternal beings, Lord, what we do now is only preparation for what we shall do forever. And so, Lord, in obedience to your claim in our lives, we give ourselves to you now and forevermore in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.